understand we've all felt stuck at one point or another, even the most successful people among us, because it's a rite of passage, a trial, to see if you have what it takes to be independent. The test is to prove that you deserve your destiny. Each week our goal is to bring you an inspiring story of someone who moved beyond their stranded face and found greatness on the other side. Welcome to The Stranded Podcast, and this is your host, Jessica Hurley. What's up, guys? Welcome back to The Stranded Phase Podcast. I am your host, your girl, Jessica Hurley, and I have another incredible guest for you today. Amidst everything that's going on and everything that is happening, it was so important to me to bring beautiful, intelligent voices to back to The Stranded Phase and people that could really help us with explaining this further, new opinions, new perspectives, new insights, and truly give us applicable steps as to what's going on. Because at the end of the day, as a white privileged woman, there isn't much I can say as to what you should be doing amidst this Black Lives Matter movement. There are far more important voices and far more important people that could be saying much more clear things for you to do that really makes sense. This is just the honesty is that this is not something I've been educated on and I'm learning just as you are. So I wanted to bring some really incredible voices. So I'm so excited to have this criminal and family law attorney, six years, Florida State alumni, and this beautiful soul that was referred to me. And I'm so excited to finally personally meet her, Kyla Coleman. Welcome to the Strand of Face podcast. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Of course, of course, of course. So first things first, and the reason why I thought it was so cool to interview an attorney was this. I'm watching all of this going on. We're all feeling in different ways, feeling in different ways, the chaos and the the pain and the fear and the suffering. And some of us are feeling the sadness and the depression. And I've been thinking this whole time, how do Black men and women feel that are sworn in police officers to protect that are have careers and jobs that are requiring them to uphold the law that almost make them on the other side of the pendulum in this situation how do they feel and so i was wondering for you as an attorney for 6 years probably dealing with a lot of law enforcement and a lot of people in this sector and as a black woman how does this is this different for you it's definitely different for me but i think it's necessary I'm not a law enforcement officer, but I am, you know, a practicing attorney. So I feel like it empowers me. Mm. I have a level that other people don't have. I have an entry into the legal system, which is where the next phase of these murders are headed is to the legal system. And hopefully, you know, justice will be served. But it empowers me. It makes me proud to be an attorney. There are only 5% in the whole population of Black female attorneys. And I'm part of that 5%. What? Yeah. So I hold that very highly. I was actually just meeting with the representative earlier today for lunch um, from my district. His name is Traveris McCurdy. I've made it a point for me to start going around and meeting with the people who are to represent us in Tallahassee. He's a black male. And he was just saying that that's the next phase. People keep asking what's next. What's next is for people like us to get into law enforcement, to get into representative uh, positions, to become lawyers, judges, all of those things is to start occupying those spaces which were not originally meant for us to occupy. Mm. So I feel mm. So taking over these positions of power so that your voices are loud, louder, heard louder. Absolutely. That is what's next. So we had the generation before us or two generations before us, I would say like our parents, our grandparents that were protesting and marching just for us to have the right to vote. 
Mm. Obviously, they were doing that for a reason, because voting empowers us. That gives us a voice. So now that we can vote and we're doing that, the next step is to actually get in those positions that other people are voting for, too. So that's mm. what's the And it's mm. a position of empowerment instead of feeling helpless. Gosh, this is so good already. Is there a specific reason you personally got, you became an attorney? Was there a specific situation? Was it something you knew you always wanted to do? Or did you know that this was the only position that you were going to be able to create change from? Well, I went to an all-Black private Christian school growing up in Tallahassee. It was run by our church. And so the pastor of our church wanted to make sure that we saw people in the community in positions of power that looked like us, Mm. which is a very big thing. So I'm grateful I went to private school. I went there from roughly pre-K through sixth grade. So what happened was in my third grade class, we had a judge that came in. Her name is Judge Nikki Clark. At Mm. the time, she was just, I think, a county court judge. But she came in her role. And I remember going home and I told my mom, I want to be her when I grow up. So pretty much since third grade, I've been on the path to become a judge. Right now, I'm just an attorney. You have to practice five years before you become a judge. So yes, I'm over that mark now. And I'm trying to work my way into politics so that I can eventually become a judge. And I still keep in contact with that judge to this day. She's retired now. She retired from the first district court of appeal in Tallahassee. And I talk to her often. Wow. So that's like your mentor. That's my mentor. And I had no clue, you know, that everything that I would be doing would be leading up to this time where attorneys are necessary, but I'm grateful. And she changed my life. Mm, They know the power. Listen, my listeners know the power of mentoring. I always talk about it. A mentor changed my life. So I can only imagine. And this speaks to us now as adults, because so many people are listening to this podcast are 25, 35, 45, that you are a walking example constantly to someone looking up to you right now. Like, imagine that that woman came probably answered somebody's email like, damn, I got to go speak at this class, another class, and didn't know that she was going to set the tone for you for the rest of your life. That's exactly what happened. So it never crossed my mind to even reach out to her and let her know how much she impacted me until I was in law school about to graduate. Oh, well, you know, she's still alive, right? Like, you know, you can call her. So I was like, there's no way I can call this judge and anybody will just, you know, pick up the phone and allow me to meet her. I called her judicial assistant. The judge got on the phone with me and cried because (gasps) she didn't know. She didn't know. So from the time I was in third grade, what are you, eight years old? Until the time I graduated law school, which would have made me 23, that long span of time, she had no clue that she changed my whole life. Mm. So she swore me in when I became an attorney. (gasps) I passed the bar on the first try. Yeah, she swore me in. And she also told me that when I passed, when I become a judge, she would swear me in as well. So she had no clue. And she did say that she remembers going to our private Christian school. She did not want to go that day. She went. So you just never know. And now that makes me believe in the power of mentoring as well. So giving back. I always try to keep somebody that's in elementary school, somebody that's in high school and somebody that's in law school as well. Oh my Mm -hmm. God. This is so good. (laughs) This is going in a completely different direction than I thought it was. But I love this so, so much. I ended up doing a TEDx talk on the ripple effect of mentoring. Like that is the most important thing to me because I know the true power of it. And I know that that woman had no idea the walking example. 
I mean, of course, you're in that role of power. You know that you are being looked at and seen and, you know, but she didn't know that that day that she would change your life forever. And then now what she has no idea of is the people, like you said, you're mentoring. So now you have all of these people and these people, this will change the trajectory. I cannot talk today. That's the a big word. Yes. <laughs> Here I go trying to use these big words, <laughs> you know, change the trajectory of their lives. And now this changes the outcome of their families, their expectations, what they have coming up. And this will ripple for generations to come. Absolutely. And so I have an episode coming out. I don't know when this will air. So in a couple of days of the audio of my TED talk, but what I say in the beginning is this is not the answer to the problem we're faced with right now, but I definitely want people that are looking for things to do to consider mentoring. Absolutely. That is something that can be done in this process. If you're one of those people that maybe protesting isn't for you. I've told everyone protesting might not be for you. Maybe you're pregnant. Maybe you, there might be reasons. Maybe your job, believe it or not, which unfortunately I've heard Florida is still a right to work state. I'm sure you can confirm that. But you, some employers have told people if they go protest and they catch them, they will let them go. So there may be reasons for that. So, but you can go into these communities and mentor incredible kids that don't have the resources. It's not a charity project. It's the fact that there are kids that don't have the resources available because of the oppression in the system that we've been talking about all this time. I've worked in at-risk programs my entire life and the stuff that the system builds in for these kids to be faced with one small arrest leads to $5,000 in restitution, probation for two years. They violate probation, which is so easy because you're caught driving home after work after 8 p.m. Like it's a wrap. You're in the system forever. Yep. So going into these places, and if you're just looking for some type of direct impact, maybe you don't want to change the world. Maybe you just want to change a few. Mentoring is a great place to start. And great place to start. Not, with COVID, I feel like our reach actually can be a bit broader than it would be just pre-COVID. For example, I did a virtual career day. One of my <gasps> friends reached out to me. It was a school in Atlanta. Never have seen any of these kids a day in my life. All they told me was, can you please shoot a five minute video about what you do as a lawyer? I have nephews and a niece that are very young. So these were elementary school age children. So I know you can't just talk to them. You have to include pictures. So I (laughs) I guess that's a little bit different. Yeah. Than what the other speakers did. The young lady messaged me back and was like, the kids enjoyed, like they loved listening to what you were like as a lawyer. They, you know, they love looking at the pictures. And these are kids, like I said, I've never seen. I just sent a video as part of virtual career day. And who knows whose life is being changed from that? Oh my gosh. And imagine one day somebody said something like what you said in my class during COVID-19, because kids will talk about this for the rest of their life, by the way. (laughs) It'll be like a year of remembrance. Like, remember that year we stayed home from school the whole year? (laughs) I saw this woman speak about being a lawyer and her job sounded funner than everyone else's. Mm -hmm. So that's what I went and did. Yeah. And so there are opportunities like that. You know, your reach is a lot further than you might think, especially right now. If you want to connect and you want to be part of something greater than yourself, the opportunities are endless. You just got to look. Oh, absolutely. Oh, so to go back to you becoming a judge, because I think this is incredible. You have a very clear path and you are looking for a position of power to use your voice to kind of further the community and all the things that matter to you, which I think is so important. As you've gone up on this journey, have you experienced racism on that side of like judges and law enforcement officers and 
prosecutors and absolutely. Well, like I said, it's only five percent of us. I'm in the five percent, which is extremely sad, but it is what it is. I'm proud to be part of that because I know that other young ladies will look at me and possibly make that percentage change in the future. Mm-hmm. But I've walked into courtrooms before and I've been seen as the defendant, which is nothing wrong with being <gasps> the defendant. What? Yeah, when you walk into a courtroom and they automatically assume that you know, you are not, you're, I don't want to say the lowest on the totem pole, but you're not what it is that you are. I've been also told not to come across the bar. So the bar is that entry at the front of the courtroom. So when you come in, it's like usually a swinging door. Yes. That's called the bar. So when you pass the bar, it's like a a symbolism of being able to cross that line now. Right. The weight behind that because they didn't believe I was an attorney. (gasps) I always have to keep my bar card on me to show who I am. When it comes to things from judges, it's the microaggressions that really get me. I was in a courtroom where my prosecutor happened to be an African-American woman as well. Frequently, this judge would get me and her mixed up, our names, often. And it's like, we look nothing alike. So it's like, do you really just think that we all look alike? Because you're proving that stereotype. So you're constantly calling me a prosecutor and I'm not. I'm a defense attorney. Oh, my gosh. Um, I've also seen judges that sentence people differently. Yes. Um, I've had clients that have had similar backgrounds in crimes and they've been treated differently. So I frankly have the talks with my client. Look, you know, you're a black male. You know what we're up against. You know, so when you go to court. Try to change the way you talk a little bit. Try to do this. Try to do that. Because you always have to, I feel like, assimilate in order to even have a chance on the playing field. And I hate those conversations, but unfortunately, it is what it is right now. And you have to have those uncomfortable conversations with your client because the judges don't want to talk about that. Oh, my God. I'm going to ask you a further question. Does colorism exist in the measuring stick for charges? Not charges, but... Now, when you say colorism, it triggers something different for me. So colorism, are you talking about in the black community, like being light skin versus dark skin? Yes, I believe so. And so that's one thing where I've had to check my privilege because I am considered a light skin woman. So I will definitely use whatever privileges I have to advance my people. But yeah, so the closer that you are to white, the more lenient your sentence may be. And definitely if you are a dark-skinned male, a dark-skinned woman, you might not get the same shake as everybody else. Because I was just talking with someone, I was having a like a tough conversation like this. And then a woman wanted to have with me before interviewing. She's actually doing a session where she's interviewing biracial couples that have biracial children. Mm-hmm. And she was like, you know, what does a conversation look like for your biracial son? And I was like, it hit me. It's so crazy that I knew we had this conversation, but I didn't even think about the conversation that we had and how ridiculous it was just on a tiny little micro level that right after this happened, we talked about talking to my stepdaughter and then we said, okay, we need to talk to our our son's only, he's about to be three. So what is this conversation going to look like when he gets older? And my fiance literally said to me, well, he's really light right now. So this may never be a problem. It just depends on how dark he gets. Mm. And just thinking like, and and in that moment, I was like, yeah, you're right. Like, I didn't even think about it until I had to think about why, without cussing, why in the, is that even a conversation Mm -hmm. that we're basically saying, well, if he can get by as not looking black, he might be okay. Yeah. And that's a a sad reality. That is very sad, but that's, that's not the first time that I've heard something like that. It's so crazy. And then I, I mean, I'm not biracial, so I don't know what the struggles are specifically for biracial individuals. But I know for me, mm-hmm. sometimes there's that assumption that I am and I'm not. 
I'm 100%, both parents are, are Black. And I think that that is a conversation that within the Black community, we need to start having as well to wow. do our own work. Wow. And so another question I have for you as I'm hearing you say this that I think is is so interesting is a lot of like the microaggressions I hear is with you being in a predominantly white field, especially being only the 5%, do you get a lot of like, so now when people do finally deal with you because they have let you across the bar and they do let you sit at the tables and they realize that you are an attorney, that now that you're having these conversations, do you get a lot of like, oh, wow, you know, I'm really surprised you're very smart or that they treat you like, oh, for a black girl? Yeah. And articulate, I'm articulate and they don't put the for a black girl anymore. It's Mm -hmm. just you're very articulate. And I'm thinking, would you say that normally? Right. I am intelligent, but I mean, I would just, I don't know. It's just the norm for me. Like I hang out with other intelligent individuals. We're not, it's just weird. It's those microaggressions. And what I will say is that the people I experience the worst form of racism from are the white male attorneys. They hate me. (laughs) <laughs> they absolutely hate me because it almost not the white male prosecutors, the white male attorneys, attorneys in general, whether it's a prosecutor, whether it's somebody that I'm dealing with on a family law case, just white male attorneys, because I, like I said, it's 5%. So when we enter those good old boy courtrooms where you have these people that are used to attorneys looking a certain way, and if you're not white and you're not a male, they don't expect you to come into that space. And when I go into a space, I occupy it fully. I walk as if I'm supposed to be there because I am. I speak with authority. And that kind of, I guess, rubs them the wrong way. Like, who do you think you are to come in here and speak to me like that? We're on the same level. I'm an attorney. You're an attorney. And especially when I beat them, which is pretty often, it's even worse. (laughs) Yeah. Emails have been horrible. It's just, it exposes itself. It's a nasty thing. The microaggressions or just the big aggressions as well. Racism is racism. Oh, so it doesn't matter how high you go. It's everywhere. Um, But, you know, I'll let you in on a secret. These are the conversations that we have behind closed doors as African-American people, as Black people, period. You are raised knowing that you have to be 10 times better than anybody else in whatever it is you decide to do in life. And they are serious when they say be 10 times better. It's called the Talented 10. So I don't know if you ever heard of that before, but you want to Google that, the Talented 10. So when you go into these spaces, you already know that they're assuming that you're not going to be intelligent. They're assuming that you're not going to be on top of your stuff. So you have to know more than what the other side knows in whatever profession you go into. Well, this should make you the smartest people on the block then, because if you're 10 steps ahead, but people are always assuming the worst. Right. And sometimes we play that down because you can't just go in showing all of your cards. So sometimes you might try to dumb it down a little bit just to see what the other person might know or how the other person's coming at you. And then you can adjust accordingly. But the amount of code switching that we have to do, the amount of being a chameleon that we have to do at the end of the day, when we get home, the majority of us are exhausted because that is the only time you can just really take your mask off and just hang out. So I'm trying to be professional with you right now. But after this Zoom call, I'm going to hang out, you know, be, be real to yeah. you. Be yourself, please. Okay. <laughs> I invite you fully to be yourself. <laughs> this is one of the faces that I have. So I'm being me, but I just want to I want to make you aware that that's what we're having to do a lot. And it's exhausting. You said code switching. Explain code switching to many people. Yeah. So code switching is where you <laughs> will put on a different voice depending on what 
situation you're in. So when I'm in a courtroom, I know I'm going to have to be a little bit more pointed with my words, use certain words, articulate a little bit more than I normally would mm-hmm. versus when I'm at home or when I'm with my homegirls, maybe some more of my accent might come out because I'm from Tallahassee. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe I might use finna, should, throw some work, shoulda, coulda, like throw my words together like I normally do, just run them along. It's just you, you have to switch up what you speak like in order to fit whatever environment you're in. I don't think that it's the greatest thing, but I think that when you're a person of color, you become very aware of how you speak. Case in point, and I'm sorry if I'm talking too long, is I was, I started seventh grade at a charter school. So I left my public school where all the people look like me. And I finally went to another school, Florida High, which is Florida State's K through 12 school. And at the time, Mm -hmm. trying to have the exact percentage of whatever the state of Florida was made up in the school. So if it was 13% African-American, they would try to have that at the school or they would try to make it equal to what Florida was reflect from my But that was my first time being confronted with the way I said the word ask. I said ax. And my teacher would just be on me. Oh, ax. And I was like, I don't know what he's talking about. Like ax. Like, you know what I'm talking about. So I became hyper aware of the things that I was saying. And although he understood what I was saying, he would critique it. So I'm in love with language. I try to listen to the heart behind what somebody's saying, whether they say the right word or pronounce it improperly wrong. But those are the microaggressions. Once again, you know exactly what I'm saying, but you would rather critique what I've said and how I've said it than to just listen to the heart behind it. So there's that. (laughs) So I'll tread lightly because I on this part, because I keep saying this in every episode, but I'm going to continue to say it. And so for people that are listening that are non-Black and white, this The reason why this conversation is so important is because one, I want you to hear what she's saying. And this is from someone in a a high position that is seeking power that can make decisions for communities of color. And she's still having to tiptoe around the requirements that society holds for a white superior space. Mm -hmm. And so what I want you to understand is as if you've taken a side, because you have to take a side in this. So if you've taken a side, And you have picked this side that you want to further the Black Lives Movement, that you want to enact change and to stop watching Black lives suffer at the cost of white, just this white supremacy and white superiorness, that's even a word, then you have to understand that there's going to be some very uncomfortable conversations. Mm -hmm. There's going to be some very uncomfortable conversations and you're going to hear things like this and you're going to go, because what I'm trying to get non-Black and white people to understand is that what you just said there's going to be a white person that's going to be like, well, I don't say things like that. I don't correct black people when they say ask. I don't make them talk clean. You know, I don't make them talk a certain way. I've never directly been racist, you know, but it doesn't matter. It does not matter because the uncomfortableness that we're experiencing during this time is the equivalent to what black lives are experiencing their entire lives. So welcome to the fucking club. I don't know what else to tell you. Like these are the uncomfortable conversations that need to be had and we need to kneel and listen and hear this pain and suffering because we're on the side of the oppressor, whether we like it or not. Just as Black people don't have a choice of what they're born into, white people were born into the role of the oppressor because we do experience that level of privilege. We just do. And what frustrates me is, even though you may not have been the person to try to correct someone who might have said something that you felt was not enunciated properly, what did you do to stop that person from being the critic? What did you do to, to help that person in that situation that might not have known that a word was supposed to be pronounced correctly and that person's, you know, being attacked now? Mm. What I will not tolerate anymore, and I'm adamant about it, is white passiveness. Ooh, tell if me you more. see something happening 
and it's inappropriate, if you don't step into that situation, you're just as guilty as the person that's actually dealing out the oppression. Mm, Tell me more. Give me an So you're saying basically in the situation where your teacher said that if somebody, if there was another white person in there, they should have said, do not correct her. That's not. Well, you're a kid. So, you know, of course that's an adult, but if there was another teacher that was in the room, perhaps something to step in, like you understood what she meant. Don't do that. You know, something like that. Call it out when you see it. Do not be passive aggressive. Do not be passive about anything that's happening right now because your passiveness could equal somebody else getting hurt. Mm. 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 This is good. These are actionable steps that everybody can look in the mirror and handle. Listen, this is, this can be done. This is, these are actionable steps. I just went to a town hall meeting last week and watched this white man stand up and he said, listen, I am the equivalent of white privilege. I have a white picket fence. I have a very white family. I've never had a black friend in my life. And he said, but I'm here. I'm tired of watching what I'm watching on television. I think it is the most unfair thing I've ever seen. I have no idea what to do, but I'm here. And I don't want to see it happen another long second because I think this is the saddest thing I've ever seen that we're treating black people like this that are just like us. You know, and he was like, but I have no idea what to do. None. I don't know who to talk to. I don't know where to go. So I'm just showing up to all these meetings because I don't know what to do. And it's like, but some listening to some of the things you're saying, like, I know he's seen that in the workplace. I know he's seen it. He's probably contributed to it. If not, it's just a superiorness that many white people are born with, period, Mm -hmm. unfortunately. And it's okay. I feel like the white privilege term is now... I feel like when it first came around, people were just so upset about hearing that and being Mm -hmm. called on their stuff that they just wanted to just shut it down. But I feel like now it's kind of like, okay, well, maybe I do have privilege, you know, so now it's it's a little bit more acceptable or maybe a little bit more digestible for Mm -hmm. white people. I'm not sure. It's just something that has shifted with these last murders that I've seen more white people that are in support of helping. And it's, it's making me feel good. But at the same time, one pressure that I'm feeling is the pressure to try to educate. And I don't mind doing that as long as that person has tried and has done some work prior. But don't look at me as the encyclopedia of Blackness and for your answers. You know, there's Google, there's books, there's different things that can be done. And I would just say to any of your listeners, go to Google first, go to books first. And then when you go to your friend that might might be a person of color, start it out with, hey, I researched this. Google said this, this, and this happened. Is this real? Is this true? Because now we know you've done your work before you came to us and we're a little bit more open to a dialogue. So this is such a good question that I want to have an open conversation about. This has so been so big because I'm inside this online influencer space. And I'm seeing people get ripped to shreds, like people being held accountable, rightfully so, some of which should be, you know, some that took this as an opportunity to reach out to more Black women to ask them for to be on their podcast and whatnot, when they've never had a Black person on their podcast their entire five years. And then all of a sudden, now they want someone to come on and educate, which is a completely different situation. Mm -hmm. But this thin line I want to talk about, because first things first, Other than Jane Elliott, I think her name's Jane Elliott. Is that her name? The white woman? Other than Jane Elliott, I don't think there's a white person on this earth that knew everything about Black history because you would have to evolve. You would have to, what's the word I'm looking for? You would have to like swim in it because it doesn't exist publicly. Mm -hmm. It would have to be your favorite thing that you would have to consume yourself in to know all of it because it's not in our history books. Right. So it was like, even I was learning, like I started researching, like I had no idea about the Tulsa race riots. No clue. Mm -hmm. None. 
I had no idea. Like there were so many things that have come up that I was like, what the entire, like how were these things happening? How was this okay? Like from things about how people used to breed alligators, what they used to do with slaves. Like it was like, I was disgusted and appalled. And I'm like, and for anybody to have the nerve at this point to say that we don't owe people an apology for slavery. I was like, you clearly haven't read shit. Right. (laughs) Clearly, clearly have not. And so having a conversation around this is, I guess what I want to ask you and understand is that I absolutely think that I'm with you 1000%. Go do the work, go do the research, go read some books, go do something. At what point should we, like I'm connecting with you because the other part that I feel that is wrong is I don't want to see more white women go educate more white women on how to be Mm anti-racist. I think that they don't know. I don't think that we know what the best way to be anti-racist is. I want to put those Black women in those positions to have a voice to say, what should you do to help us? Because at this point, I feel like it's we've got the proof that Black lives are devalued. They are. They just are. There's proof now. Mm-hmm. So now as white women with voices, with privilege, we want like, if we know now we have the leverage, you know, tell me what I can do. The mm-hmm. history is critical, mm-hmm. but there's so much right now swarming the internet from signing petitions to calling your local and state officials to protesting, to showing up, to reaching out to your Black friend to make sure that they're okay, to sending these pre-written emails, to understanding the eight can't wait, to seeing what your governor is looking at as signing into law, like all of these things. What should people be doing to considerably start that anti-racist journey outside of first things first, learning, researching, and, and really diving into the history? I think you have to look at a few things. One, what is your personality type? Is your personality type very vocal? Because if your personality type is a vocal type, go protest, go march. Just simply join there because you will not only meet just one Black person, you'll meet a ton of people (laughs) that are of color. So you'll be able to see them. And then there are usually speakers at these protests and marches. So you'll hear people on the loudspeakers telling you action agendas or action items that you can do. If you're a person that's more quiet, look at articles, share articles, post things on Facebook. If you are good with typing or writing, write things, you know, show support, just write support. If you see something that's not right on your timeline, even if a black person doesn't see it, go after that person on the timeline. Write that and say, hey, where are you getting this information from? Correct them because you just never know what person is impacting. And I know for me, it's I've really been impressed you know, lately with some of my white friends because they've gone harder than me and they've <laughs> gone harder than me because I'm tired, you know, right yeah. now. Yes. I'm still trying to heal and at the same time trying to protest and do different things in my own field. But there's always something that you can do. Look at your town hall meetings, see when they're coming up. The Police Citizens Review Board, I'm vice chairman of ours here in Orlando. If you have some of your own communities, go to the meetings. If they don't have them, start them. It's whatever you feel is your strong suit. There's always a way for you to get in and play. But the most important thing I would say is to listen. I feel like it's a time for people that are not of color to speak up against racism, but at the same time to not try to overpower the voices that are already being heard by, you know, the the Black people that are speaking up. Also take time to listen. Mm. And that'll direct you. But there's not one answer. There's not one, you know, whatever your strengths are, play to those strengths. I love it. I love it. Thank and you. And so what I would say, too, I don't know how far reaching your podcast goes, but I would assume national or international, 
Mm-hmm. Look up what has happened in your own city. There's always Black history in every single city you go to. If you are listening in Florida and you just need a place to start, start with Rosewood. Mm. That happened right here in our backyard. So we talk about Tulsa a lot, but we don't talk about a whole community that was damaged and burned overnight because a white woman accused a black man of raping her. So start there. And I want to go back to something. Our people, especially African-American people, but I would just venture to say all black people, we are what you would call a storyteller. So a lot of our history, a lot of our, our knowledge is passed down through storytelling. So imagine growing up and hearing about Emmett Till, seeing those pictures, learning about Rosewood, knowing about Tulsa. You're having to learn that as a child, just so you know how to function when you go out here in this world. Because we know, you know, that there are certain people that are out there that still come from the same stock that killed Emmett Till. So we've learned about this. It's ingrained in us and it's in our DNA. So if you want to learn some stuff too, you might want to go visit with older African-American people that have the stories. And they have the time to sit down and talk to you about it. The younger people don't have all the time. They don't got the time. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm taking over all of it. No, 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 no. This is so good. This is, Mm -hmm. this is so good because it's, I think there was uh, the governor of New York, his brother, the one that's always on the news, Andrew. Yeah. Yes. He said, he did a video and said that there's basically two Americas. There's America and then there's Black America. And I'm just listening to you talk and I'm like, I know so many people still can't figure out or acknowledge that amongst us, living amongst us daily are people that are scared for their lives, that they're not protected by anyone so but themselves. He said that, right? So we already had a term for that in the Black community. You can Google it. It's called double consciousness. Mm. That's what we have been taught. It's double consciousness. So yeah, he's exactly right. Like I said, the way that I act in my house is completely different how I would act out in public, you know? What really struck me hard over the weekend, I just dyed my hair, right? I went to Walmart to look for some hair dye. And I was like, man, I'm looking at these faces on the boxes of the hair dye. And it's hard for me to even know if my hair is going to look the same as hers because she doesn't look like me. Right. And then I realized, oh yeah, there's a whole aisle for just our hair. Well, not even a whole aisle. A half a of an right. hour. Right. A quarter. From, right. For my hair. Why is it like that? And then, you know, there are several different types of hair dye for people that don't look like me. But when I go to the little section that they give me, this tiny little square where a whole bunch of Black people are trying to fight to get into just to get hair products, now I only have three to choose from, three brands. So I'm just like, man. So it's those things that people don't really think about that really affect us. Hair dye. I cannot walk into any salon right now and get my hair done. I have to go choose a salon that specifically knows how to do my hair. You know, it's a lot. It's a lot. Take it in. Just understand, you know, I feel like it's going to get better, but I'm grateful for the strides that we're making thus far, but we still have a long way to go. Okay. I got to really, someone asked me this on a call and I was like, whoa. And the way I answered it, she was really surprised. So I want to ask this from your perspective. If I, as a white woman, should we, when having conversations with black women or black men, Should we apologize for our white privilege? I guess it would just depend on the person that you're talking to. If you randomly came up to me and apologized for your white privilege, (laughs) lady is crazy. Let me. (laughs) But on a friend level, I don't know that apologizing would be okay for me. I think acknowledging it is enough for me. Mm. Acknowledging it and then me personally seeing you do something with your privilege to help. 
because wow. words are not enough. It needs to be actions coupled with words. We've had words for too long. Right. I just, she asked me that. She was like, do you think you should apologize for your privilege? And I was like, it just struck me so differently. And when I thought about it, I was like, in my, not to a stranger, obviously, but I'm like, there's nothing wrong with apologizing about it because the way I look at it is I'm like, you know what, if I went to an event and there was a Holocaust survivor speaking and he was speaking about everything that had happened to him and how he had watched his father and his mother and his children or his brother and sister be killed right in front of his eyes. And then they said, you can meet him afterwards. And I was to come and sit down with him and he was going to sign my book or we were going to take a picture together, or have a conversation. I can't imagine that anything else out of my mouth, the first thing would be, I'm so sorry for what you experienced. Mm. I can't imagine that that wouldn't be the first thing that I would. I can't imagine myself saying anything else, but it's not from a place of it's and I this might sound very wrong, but it's not that I'm saying it from, from a place of ownership. It's saying that I'm saying it from a place of like, I see your suffering and I'm so sorry that you had to go through that. Mm-hmm. And I'm just watching so many Black people speak up through their pain and their their anxiety and their fears right now. And it pains me to see it because it's like, they're really hurting, y'all. Oh, yeah. Like they're really hurting. It doesn't hurt you to start a conversation by saying, I'm so sorry that you're suffering this way. I want to be a part of the solution. Mm-hmm. But now that you say it like that, I think that's a beautiful way to look at it because I would have never looked at it that way. One, because I don't feel that the vast majority of people understand that what we have suffered and what we are suffering now is like the Holocaust. You know what I'm saying? It can be likened to that. I don't think that enough people think about it in those terms. One, because it's still going on, right? Right. So... I think that's a beautiful way to think about it. And I guess it would just vary on whoever you speak with. But if you're coming from that position, I think that we're, at least me, I'm a good discerner of character and people's intentions when they come in front of me. So if I, if you said that and you had that heart behind it, I would receive it. Right. But for too long, I've heard people just say different things and they don't mean it. Right. For example, on my Facebook status, I think it was last night. Somebody was in my inbox talking about racism and I could just tell he was being disingenuous because of his Facebook posts were different than what he was inboxing me personally. So I just told him, please don't talk to me privately about anything that you're not posting publicly. I'm not going to be your emotional support animal. I'm not going to be your emotional support black friend. Right. So just as long as what you're saying matches up with what you're doing, I'm okay with it. Yeah. And I've seen a lot of that too. And it bothers me a little bit. I was at the gym. That's so crazy. I was at the gym working out and I go to a class and the guy's super hardcore, like the coach, like that's his job. Like he's super, get off your phone, 10 more, don't stop, keep going, you know, like very tough. And we were at the end of the workout and it's near my neighborhood. So it's primarily white. There's only, there's like two black women that come regularly. And she picked up her, the black woman picked up her phone and he was like, get off your phone. It's not time for Snapchat. And then I saw this look which that's something he would say to anybody. That's how he is. Like, it's like, get off your phone. Not right now. Do it when you leave. Like, he's very, he's a hard ass. This is, mm-hmm. he's like, I was trying to think of the movie of the Lieutenant, but. Oh, the one with Damon Wayans or Ken. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Forget to. You know, oh, major so pain. Yes. <laughs> he's a hard ass. That's his job. But mm-hmm. so when she picked up her phone, he said it. And then immediately I saw his face drop that he realized he said it to a black woman. And he was like, he turned and he was like, I'm just kidding. I don't know who you were texting, so I'm sorry. And like, but he never apologizes. Never, not never, ever. And I was like, 
<laughs> so, I was like, what? <laughs> and I was like, I can see where it's causing this like fragileness around conversations that now used to be normal are causing a lot of people to be very careful in what they say to certain people, which I find very interesting because I'm like, I think some people don't know how to charter these waters. For me, it feels normal. This has been my life, but I think for a lot of people, it's not. And now they feel like they have to censor what they say and be careful. But I'm like, that's what Black people have been doing their whole lives. I don't know what to tell you. Every day. It's always like we have to figure out how you guys will receive things from us because we're, especially as a Black woman, we're seen as the aggressive, angry, whatever. And it's like, can we just be mad about something and not be seen as aggressive? You know what I'm saying? Can we just be passionate about something and not have a negative connotation associated with it? But, you know, I'm actually glad that situation happened because I would rather see the wheels in his mind turning about how he spoke to someone versus just to do it and just not care. So I'm okay with that. Yeah. This is, it's, it's interesting times. So there was a, so when I did my TEDx in 2018, I did it because of a TEDx episode that somebody sent me that they said that I would enjoy. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It was Adam Foss. Do you know who that is? No. Mm -mm. So he's a prosecutor and he did the, one of the best TEDx I've ever seen. It went viral. I even saw him in LA and ended up jumping on him and giving him a hug because I was like, you've inspired the shit out of me. But this TEDx, it blew my mind because one, it taught me the, the role that prosecutors play, how powerful they are, which I did not know. And so it talked about being very serious about voting the right prosecutors into their roles. And he talks about this working, I think it was in Baltimore, when a young man was caught stealing laptops off a truck and selling them. And they, he talks about like, he lays out all the things that they wanted to pin against him and how it could have been like 10 years and all this stuff. And it was so crazy. And he had just gotten into college. And the reason he was selling laptops was because he didn't have any money to pay for college tuition or not tuition, but the room, the board, the move, like he didn't have money for anything. Mm -hmm. It's expensive. Exactly. And so he fought for the young man to be basically to instead get it to where he could go get a summer job, made sure he got a summer job, made sure that he paid back the cost of the 75% of the cost of the laptops. Then he had to write the apology letter. He had to do a couple other things and talks about how eight years later he was at a meeting and the man walked up to him crying and he was a, the head assistant for a bank. The guy who he, that that he set free, that he let go to college, basically he changed his charges. Yeah. So talks about how now him and his partner, all they do is work on changing some of these, these implementations that are put onto these young men, these young black men, especially in the way in which they're prosecuted. Mm-hmm. And it blew my mind. And so on a surface level, what I want to kind of hear from you was what do people not understand about like the power of like understanding what the prosecutors are capable of and like your attorneys and what roles that they play in some of this? Yeah. So like that prosecutor was saying, he really has the power to change somebody's life, whether it's they go to prison for a ton of years or they drop something down to a misdemeanor and maybe they get some probation. I really hate that some of these prosecutors don't have a lot of life experiences. So like some people just don't have black friends or don't know about other cultures. And you need to know these things whenever you're going to file charges against a defendant, because Mm -hmm. they may be coming from a background that didn't set them up for the best, you know? And so now their life is literally in your hands. So 
They have the choice to upcharge things or downcharge things. A lot of the judges have been former prosecutors, so they're pro-prosecution. They're ready to put people in jail, ready to do those things. I actually was just having a conversation with my friend earlier today. She is a former prosecutor. She's African-American as well. And people used to get down on her for being a prosecutor. They're like, how can you put my people in jail, this, this, and that? And she was like, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm trying to help from my side. Not right. saying that she wants to keep all Black people or persons of color out of jail, but she can sniff through BS. She knows the cultural you know, aspects of different things. And she can make sure that something's a little bit fair versus a prosecutor who may not have that experience. So they hold a lot of power. I've never wanted to be a prosecutor. I am not. <laughs> I'm a defense attorney in family law, but I was speaking with the representative today because I want to get into writing different bills and writing Mm. different, you know, laws so that it can affect people in the long run. Because I really believe that's where a lot of the power is. Yeah, you have a prosecutor, but the prosecutor can only follow what was written into law. Right. So get into that for a second is what are, because right now I think like the only some of the ones I've heard of is, well, obviously there's Brianna's law, which is going on up North, but the eight can't wait, which is a lot of things that people are trying to pass. What are some of the things that you would like to change? Some of the things that you would like to write into change or some of the things right now that are on the horizon that you think maybe people don't know about or you want to bring attention to? Well, for me, I like to do when I first start off with writing, because I'm not familiar with it yet. I'm just learning about it. But the lower level crimes that really ruin people's lives, right? Like the marijuana. Oh my God. Yeah. Oh my God. So you have a ton of Black men that have not only gone to jail, but prison, which is a year, you know, anytime over a year and a day, you're in prison now for little marijuana charges. And it's like, come on. And now you see other people starting whole marijuana businesses. So I want to start with the decriminalization of that and not even where it's a civil citation, because it's at the officer's discretion, I believe here in Orlando, where if you have a certain amount of weed, they can just say, no, we'll just give you a ticket. But it's still the systematic racism that can make a higher instance of Black people get that. So I don't even want it to be the civil citation. And I also hate the fact that now it's becoming monetized through people owning marijuana businesses, because now it becomes expensive to have to smoke weed that you can just get off the corner. Mm -hmm. So now you have to get a medical marijuana license. You have to actually have health insurance to go to a doctor for somebody to prescribe you the license, you know? Mm -hmm. So I want to start there with the lower lower level things, because I feel like what happens is so many times people have those small things that stack and stack and stack. And that's how they get into prison. These are literally the things that started literally. Like I tell people all the time on the podcast, I've always worked for at risk organizations. And I spent four of the years working for an organization that was 18 to 24 year old, primarily black men that were arrested, had been arrested. They had to have been arrested and charged four times or more and be struggling to get a job to be in the program. We had an abundance of them, first of all. Yeah. And second, what I was dealing with was majority, the charges that counted, which were always the case, was also a violation of probation. Yeah. So it would start with a very simple charge. It would be weed, driving without a license, driving with a suspended license, Maybe a few things. That's not to say that everybody was good. You know, some people had burglary or whatever, a few small, Mm -hmm. whatever, but then could not get out of that because then it was one year probation, violation of probation, two violations of probation, then restitution from this, it's $2,000. And then, well, when I went to court, I couldn't pay the restitution. So now I violated probation again. And it was like, what the, there's no getting out of it. It's literally built to fail. Yeah. Literally built to fail. And I don't think what people understand is... Can't get a driver's license. Right. And then you can't get a job. Right. 
Because you don't pay off your restitution, you can't have a driver's license. If yeah. you have any, what is it? If you have any drug charges, you can't have a driver's license during that time until after you're off probation or your probation is finalized, and then you can have a driver's license. And then you can't have a freaking job. So yeah. it's like, might as well pin me up for the rest of my life because this is not, I can't get ahead. Right. And it used to be that any type of charge that had any drugs triggered with it would automatically suspend your license for two years. They dropped it down to one year a while ago, but still, why? Still. Yeah. And what I get frustrated about is let's talk about driver's license cases for a minute. So when you have at least five suspensions within three years, you can lose your license. Let me turn this off for five years. And that's a felony. Like you can get a driver's license, which used to be a small misdemeanor. If you keep getting them, it eventually turns into a felony. So now when you go and apply for a job, you have to say, yes, I'm a convicted felon. Whereas like there are levels to felonies, right? So you can have felony for these driver's license convictions or you can have felony for murder. Like there are levels to it. So I feel like they should, the third degree felonies and lower should not even be considered felonies. They should just be misdemeanors at this point because there's a difference between somebody who has a license suspension and somebody that's killed somebody but if they're considered both felons nobody's thinking you know one thing happened over the other so yeah and then to the probation aspect of it I don't think people realize like if you have a crime let's say the maximum you can receive is five years in prison and they say okay we're just going to give you two years of probation if at any time you violate that probation you can now go in front of a judge and that judge can give you five years of prison still no matter how much probation you've already completed so let's say you completed one year and 30 days worth of probation and you violate on one thing now you're looking at five years again plus whatever new charge you might get it's ridiculous Yeah, ridiculous. That's why it's built for failure, because it was I I remember a couple years ago, I had a young man that he was on two years probation. He was on this like he had gotten his stuff together. We were so proud of him. I wasn't even working there anymore, but he would still call me and talk to me. He was working for a roofing company, making $14 an hour, had got like a work permit license so that he could go back and forth to work like he was on schedule. And then something happened where he violated probation and it was ridiculous. It was like he went and got a haircut at the only time he could go get a haircut and he got caught driving past the hours of his probation. They violated him. And then he called me to call a lawyer to see if his he knew when his court hearing was going to be. And she looked up his points and she was like, he's going to go to prison. Yeah. They're going to, he's going to get sent to prison. Yeah. These score sheets where you score literally to prison. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Craziness. Craziness. It's different, but I've seen so many cases where it's different based on race a lot of times as well. It absolutely is. It absolutely is. The biggest that I've seen it when I was a public defender was when it came to drug crimes. So there was a point in time where heroin was only really seen as a drug that Black people used. But then when it started becoming prevalent in the white communities, especially where I was down in Fort Myers, I started seeing a lot more leniency. Okay, so instead of you going to prison, oh, we're just going to put you in a drug treatment program and we're going to coddle you and hold your hand if you look a certain way. But if you don't look a certain way, let's just go ahead and put you in prison because you have a drug issue and we just don't want to waste state resources helping you. I don't like it. And let's not even mention mental health. That people don't think that Black people suffer from mental health issues. (laughs) So you have a whole section of mental health court where people don't get a fair shake if they don't look a certain way. It's a lot. Girl, we're going to have to do multiple podcasts. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. I can't even imagine. I didn't even think about that. Because I'm helping a woman right now start her podcast and it's called The Mental Health Mogul and she's a doctor and it's all about dealing with mental health and she's a black woman. And she tells me over and over and over again, that's because nobody in the black community deals with this. Nobody. Because we're told we're not supposed to. 
Yeah. And she's like, and nobody believes that we have mental health issues. They don't. They just believe that we should just be super strong and deal with everything because we do deal with things. We have the tendency of putting on a mask in order to just face the day. And then when you come home, that mask goes off. And now I feel like the younger generation of Black people are acknowledging mental health. And I have a therapist. Um, I encourage everybody to have a therapist. But two generations before me didn't believe in that. At you, know, all. you just deal with it. Yeah. But it's so much to unpack, so much to unpack. And I'm proud of where we're headed, period, as a country with starting to unpack a little bit of it. Oh, my God. A bit at a time. Thank you so much. Like you said, we could go on for hours. We could do 10 podcast episodes about this. But this, to me, was so informative. I thank you so much. So first and foremost, are there any resources that you want to give away, Some anywhere you want to send someone or places that you want people to know that they can get in contact with you, utilize your services or stalk you on social platforms? <laughs> well, I mean, Facebook, I'm not an attorney on Facebook. It's just me. So if you want to <laughs> hang out, you know, it's Kyla A. Coleman on Facebook. But then as far as my business, it's colemanlaw.net is my website. And then my email address is Kai, so C-A-I at ColemanLaw.net. And if you want to reach out to me there, feel free. I will give my phone number, but I'd rather an email to kind of slow it down. <laughs> yeah, they got a pre-qualify to talk yeah. to. <laughs> <laughs> you are busy. You're booked and busy. <laughs> I really am. And it's a beautiful place because you would think with COVID that things would slow down. But no, things have really picked up. And things of purpose, of substance, mm. here protesting, speaking to people, talking to kids with the career day, like stuff of substance. I'm very pleased. There's a little bit of a, amidst all of it, it's the light is to see that there's a bit of an awakening happening. Absolutely. That and America we are a part of history right now. We are a part of history right now. We're part of an awakening. We're part of history. We're going to see something that could change life as we know it for the rest of time. And just... Things eventually will be better because of the pain and the suffering. And that's not to be insensitive or tread lightly around this, but good things do come on the other side of what feels like true chaos. There could be a really, a really true awakening on the other side of this. And so, like you said, I love, I'm so proud of people acknowledging this. I I keep joking with people. I'm like, America woke up last week and acknowledge racism is what really just happened. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, this is real. So. It's going to take a while to see some real change. So That's I'm true. so honored to have you. I thank you so much for your time and being honest and vulnerable and authentic. That's really a value we carry on the Stranded Face. So thank you. Thank you. Times a thousand. No problem. Please invite me back. I would love to come back. I would love a recap, a second. Let's see what happens in six months where oh, we're at. So, <laughs> All right. Thanks again for joining us on another episode of The Stranded Podcast. If you felt inspired or moved today, make sure to leave a review on iTunes. You can learn more about us and our guests at thestrandedphase.com. And don't forget that your stranded phase is a rite of passage on your journey to greatness.